Clear the thin veil of dust covering your wristwatch, and you see the time is 1.59. Already, in your slit trench, arrayed across the British, you check on your buddies, all of them marred with dust, sweat, all of them visibly nervous, except for Giuseppe. He's always making those jokes, always making his boys feel a lot better. But as section leader, you don't have time for levity. You make sure every man has his ammunition. His bayonet is drawn, sharpened, ready. And you can tell the men are both anxious and excited. Under the meager cover of the camouflage net, you peer over the edge, and you can see already that the preparatory artillery barrage on the British is starting to leaven up. And the synchronized time that the mysterious general, this German general, Rommel, has handed down to your officers and your superiors is fast approaching. You will wait and you give one more long and steadying look to your men even though inside you're screaming and you know that maybe this is your last time and finally artillery completely stops and you hear nothing but a thin and silent rustle of desert heat nothing and just before this minute is over you reach for your canteen which is on its last film of water, and you slake it down for a thirst, but it helps nothing. It's so hot, and it tastes faintly of gasoline from the people that mixed up in the back at some point a container for water and gas, but also doesn't matter. You're ready. This is what your forefathers did in World War I, and this is what you'll do now. And for the last four years, you have experienced only loss against the British. But now something has changed. Something feels like victory again. Until finally, peering over, you look at your lieutenant, who raises his whistle to his mouth and blows a shriek, and finally yells, Avanti! And from the whole platoon and the battalion, and the division, before it attacks, it yells, Annoy! And finally, there is no more doubt, and you raise yourself out, and you attack across that desert plain. 
into the unknown of hellfire and possible death. These are the experiences of the division of the 10th Army in the Italian Regia Comando Esercito, just about to execute Operazione Venezia. But let's not get too far bogged down just yet into the North African campaign executed under Rommel and just talk about down to one of the greatest, most illustrious, and most mythologized campaigns of the Second World War and of all time. This might sound a little bit of an exaggeration, but it really isn't that far-fetched. Of the battlefields that defined the Second World War and the strategic implications which came from them, the North African campaign, even before, for instance, the Africa Corps, was among the most important strategic strikes for the Axis, or really the Pact of Steel, to assert dominance in the Mediterranean and perhaps victory in the long haul. The North African campaign stemmed from Italy's colonial possessions and colonial aspirations and irredentism, but it goes beyond what the history books tell you, or rather what the liberals tell you, which it has as if it were some kind of personal project for Mussolini, a vanity project with no strategic implication in the wider conflagration that was the Second World War, or even before then. The colonial possessions, of course, were something already indicative of the Italian military culture and capacity. For whatever reason, the new state of Italy, and I mean the one that arose from the Risorgimento, was, if I might be fair enough, mediocre. And oftentimes it was less than that. And um, let me give you a case in point. 1911 was when Libya was taken control by a possession of the Regia Esercito, and it came from the fall of the Ottoman Empire um, and its relative decrepitude. Of course, the Ottomans were in the midst of making as many reforms as possible, and the history of the Libyan and the Barbary Coast uh, ran deep in the colonial aspirations of the Europeans. Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco, uh, which at the time was jointly occupied by Spanish and German forces, Algeria and Tunisia obviously were French protectorates. But Libya was still part, or at least de jour, of the Ottoman Empire. And at that time, the scramble for Africa was in full flight, or at least it was on the tapering end, and the Italians wanted something. But there is also something interesting about Libya that led to the overall grand strategy of Italy herself and sustaining her. But I don't want to get into that. What I do want to get into is their military performance taking over 
and it was dreadful against the Turks. And the Turks at this time, of course, they were weaponized and they had brand new howitzers in 1911 and they had um, an outfitted local militia who were motivated religiously and nationalistically to resist the Italians. But the Italians, of course, were a newly mechanized and, uh, how do you say, industrial army, which the Turks were incapable of at that time fielding. And so it was kind of a red herring, and it was a known loss. However, when the Italians invaded into Libya, it was a fiasco. In fact, the word fiasco is Italian origin, right? And they didn't have the logistical background to sustain the troops. They didn't have the foresight to outfit their troops with uh, clothing and uniforms, which would sustain them in the operation and campaign. But on top of that, the general military incompetence and political maneuvering of the highest echelons of military command. Now, the Italian soldier himself, on the small scale, battalion and under, was always extremely good. And you can see this, obviously, in World War I, but also World War II, where the only thing that changed, for instance, on the Eastern Front or in Italy, was the command being put under the command of a German officer and a German officer corps and a German logistical system. So it had nothing to do with the tactical ineptitude or the lack of fighting spirit because they had that in spades. But it came down to, as Rommel said, unfortunately, brains. Brains and integrity. I love the Italians, and so when I say this, I don't mean it in a spuriously or cavalier insult. But unfortunately, during the Second World War, the majority of British intelligence about both the Italians, of course, and the German assets within the Italian sphere actually came from the Comando Supremo, from possibly Italo, Italo Balbo and others of his cohort, who, even before, since the 1920s, were maneuvering politically to dethrone Mussolini and the rest of the fascist council, and ultimately make himself Duce, or whatever it may be. But that wasn't just all. It was also the high command from World War I, who hadn't been removed, um, and still fought in terms of Fabian strategy. And for those of you who don't know, Fabian strategy is the strategy which entails, first of all, positional warfare, which means vying for positional supremacy of a region, which is placing, for instance, if you're in the desert, placing a strategic value on high places, high mountains, logistical centers, port sites, and logistical throughways. Now, of course, this makes sense, but here in the time of mechanized warfare, especially on the location that it was placed, where the North African terrain, for instance, could only be penetrated 50 kilometers into from the sea inland, because after that, it was just the 
Grand Saharas, dunes upon dunes, and people would lose themselves, and dehydration was rampant. It was impossible to, to traverse with trucks or with tracked vehicles, um, and also it was very slow for a march. So, practically speaking, you could only be limited to this 50-kilometer march. Now, a small sidebar here. There is this terminology in NATO which talks about the um, considerations you make when you make a plan, right? OSMIAC, which is the NATO paragraph order, five paragraph order. But within that, there's a mission statement. And then there's METTC. So there's mission, enemy, terrain, blah, blah, blah. And I'll make sure to link it on the links below so that way maybe you can edify yourself and learn about it yourself. But the most important thing is uh, the most likely course of action, right? MLCOA of the enemy. What is the consideration whether or not they will brace for attack, hold at all costs, or if they will simply skirmish and retreat under heavy fire? or whatever, right? And you have to take into account, for instance, the terrain. Now, of course, you can be like Little Heart and say, well, let's let's pull a Hannibal and go over the mountains, but the, the most likely course of action, of course, is not that. And which is why the Romans underestimated Hannibal, because it was so beyond the scope of the most likely course of action that they were unprepared. Now, in that case, in the Roman case, of course, that doesn't mean that they were wrong, because at in war with limited knowns, you have to place your bets on the most likely course of action. And that's why Hannibal was able to reap the rewards of that perilous journey over the Alps. And, when considering the campaign in North Africa, we also have to consider the terrain. The terrain penetrating to the desert, the heat, the climate, and the positional logistical sustenance of your forces and the enemy. And here is where the Italian high command under Graziani, who, by the way, I love this specific Italian commander. He's illustrious, a good man, honest, and loyal. And I'll never say a damn bad thing about him. But upon reaching the pre-German intervention of the Africa Corps, the North African campaign was waged by Graziani and individuals such as himself, and they were waging positional warfare against positional warfare. Now, positional warfare, if you don't understand, relies on a couple of key things. Superiority of firepower and superiority of logistical output. The axis even though they produce much, they actually there's this great book called Wages of Destruction, and it talks about the manufacturer of the Third Reich, of course, and the miracle that they pulled off in underground factories and still how much they were able to produce even under aerial bombardment constant, constantly. Now, it's one thing to get the manufacturing done, and it's quite another to get from the manufacturer to the logistical chain, ship it, first of all, truck it, then ship it across the Mediterranean, and then finally, truck it to the front line. 
and you have to remember at this time, due to the incompetence of the Italians, Malta, a key position, which is really only a really a rock in the middle of the Mediterranean, uh, ha was home to an airbase, which would interdict a lot of the convoys that would ship from the mainland to the North African coast. And I'm not going to go into the tonnage that was sunk by the Allies, but I think it's important that you understand that they were being slowly cho choked off. Okay, The Axis, the Italians specifically at this time, like I said, was a purely Italian force, and their objective was to invade eastwards, to seize the first of all Cairo, Alexandria, the Suez, and the Levant after, of course. And they they were trying to play to a strength that was not theirs. Now, at this time and throughout the war, the United States has been a massive supplier and manufacturer and shipper of war material and even non-war material related stuff. And, you know, what happened is the British were in a superior position to wage this kind of war because they had a defense in depth. They had the Suez, which is a massive strategic boon because what you're able to do then is, for instance, you don't have to ship through the Straits of Gibraltar. You also can ship through the Suez, but also they had the desert on their side all they had to do is hold out, but they were already advancing, right? So they went from Egypt to Tobruk, all the way through Serenica, down into the that plane. So if you can imagine, you hold your right hand up, you ball it into a fist, and you stick your thumb out. Well, basically, they had already passed that mountain chain in Serenica, which is the meat of your fist. And so they're already down there on the cusp. And it was only then did... Did Mussolini reach out to Hitler, and Hitler sent the intervention force, which was one Panzer division and one light division, which would form a corps. Um, now, the positional advantage was not on the Italian side, but so was the logistical advantage on the Allied side, as well as the, how do you say, the physical vehicles themselves lent themselves to being sustained over long per uh, term um, maintenance and uh, basically proliferation of spare parts. Now what do I mean? So the Americans supplied before the M4 Sherman, which I'm sure you were aware of, the M3 Lee. The M3 Lee of course was one of these first basic model component medium tanks, uh, basically the inheritor or the the ancestor of the main battle tank. But the beauty or the understanding of American tank design and, and design of mechanized vehicles in general came from a standardization. So they weren't exactly exceptional. Their armor was riveted. They had, you know, they weren't as fuel efficient. They weren't as fast. Uh, the M3 Lee didn't have a turret. You know, it didn't have a, a swiveling turret. Um, and so on and so forth, but the, the advantage that they had was, for instance, their engine bay would come out on a tray, and that engine was standardized across all platforms. There was no changes. So, let's say you knock out a tank, and it's like 50% busted, it'll never run again. Well, guess what? You're able to cannibalize the pieces of that tank, 
and reappropriate them to uh, the, uh, any other American tank. In addition to also being heavier, the Italians, they emphasized first the tankette, and it made its debut in, in the Spanish Civil War, and also other kind of military escapades before the Second World War, and it proved its efficiency in important things. It was the forerunner of what we called mechanized assets. It's basically served as both a tank itself, but also the towing capacity to, I don't know, drag an anti-tank uh, gun, right? We have to remember these anti-tank guns are huge, right, back at this time. They're not like small ATGMs nowadays. And what ended up happening was that they were both outclassed, but also the type of armor technology for the Italians was exquisite. And a lot of the series in production varied from tank to tank in which one part was not universal and not salvageable with the next one. And that was a major problem. And the Germans had less of this problem, but it, it also existed too. I mean, this actually came became more pronounced as time went on, for instance, in the Panther, um, and, you know, the Panzer IV model, or excuse me, the Panzer V, I, I believe. It doesn't matter. Point being is, as time went on, every single tank became more exquisite, became more um, state-of-the-art, and even though the Germans had the best tanks, tactically speaking, when it ran, when it broke down, however, the logistical sustenance of that weapon system uh, was very frail. So, yeah, you can probably knock out three or four M3 or M4s, but the difference is the it's not even just being able to produce a bunch of them, but also being able to produce and cannibalize and salvage knocked out tanks. So what this means is there is a recidivism rate of going back into the line after being knocked out, which doesn't happen as often as it did in the Wehrmacht. And case in point is the final uh, German offensive on the Eastern Front in Kursk, which is Third Kursk, right? And the Soviets have been prepared, but strategically speaking, the OKW had reassigned the majority of its armor, I mean, from its most heavy armor, the Tiger tank um, and the Ferdinand, you know, to the most exquisite, you know, Panthers and whatever ha they had left, right? The Panzer IIs, etc. And basically, they completely knocked out all their armor and weren't able to either get the ones that were in the field running again, and they weren't able to produce as many as quickly as they were able, as the Allies were able to produce, for instance, the M4 Sherman, which is the most serialized tank type. Now, let's step in and talk about specifically a little bit of the Italian possession that was Libya, and give you an understanding of the situation. Modern-day Libya, especially before Muammar Gaddafi, was entirely run uh, by local Berbers and Arabs, correct? That was the majority of the demographic. But people don't know that colonial Italy uh, was actually a very populous part of the Italian population. Roughly, it was almost like 12% of Libya's population was Italian. A lot of the cities like uh, Serenica and not, excuse me, not Serenica, that's a region, uh, but Benghazi 
and Tripoli had significant European presence. Um, and even to this day, we, we still see remnants of that kind of architecture and beauty. And many people, they kind of forget, they, they forget what it was like to have a Europeanized city or at least a quarter within the city because it was almost like you stepped from the North African desert and you were in Palermo or if you were in Algeria and you stepped into you know Algiers and you went to the French Quarter it was like stepping into Marseille but nowadays you go into Marseille and it's you know it's like Chad you know or Mombasa or something like that. Anyway, I'm, I'm just getting too far away from the mark here. But Libya was also an important strategic location for oil. Oil for the Axis was a major, major concern. It was part of the reason why the Third Reich invested so much technological time into the liquefaction of coal, which was used as a synthetic oil. But the most important oil fields that existed existed in the Pelotsi Romanian fields, which is part of the reason why the Germans swept through Romania and installed Ion Antestesu, I can't pronounce these Romanoid names, and also emphasized the importance of the, the fineries, refineries in North Africa. Locally producing oil is essential for any war mean, especially in projecting Italian naval power or naval power in general. And by the way, it's one of the most important reasons why the Navy of the Third Reich and the Navy in general did not play a more strategic and impactful role was simply because consuming that much oil um, would compromise the war effort you know, for the air wing and the army and so on and so forth. And so maintaining control of Libya was not just a plus, but it also added to the strategic imperative. So there were two frames of thought, the OKW. One, which was the through the Soviet Union, and this was the most favored one, of course, to knock out the Soviet Union and then go back into defeating the rest of the Allied powers or to work them to a stalemate. The second one was the peripheral strategy which involved taking all of the Mediterranean basin and cutting off the Allies, invading into Iran, which had been occupied by this time by both British and Soviet forces, and threatening the underbelly, and specifically the southern oil fields of the Chechen mountains in Boku and modern-day Azerbaijan. And the key goal would, of course, be the control of the Suez, the sealing of the Mediterranean Sea, so if the Suez had been taken and Iran had fallen, Spain would have likely entered the war and seized the Gibraltar Heights. This would have effectively made the Mediterranean inaccessible to the Allies in any significant form and basically cut off any naval assets, military assets, and starve them out and they would wither on the vine and most importantly, all that manpower could be focused on defeating the Soviet Union. Of course, the direct approach was favored in the early war, and that's what turned into Operation Barbarossa, 1941, and immediately they saw successes, which is why the peripheral strategy went by the wayside. 
But by the time the Africa Corps was formed and arrived in Libya, it wasn't so sure. But also, the manufacturing and logistical capacity of the Axis powers was also diminishing by the day. And so, all that Hitler wanted from Rommel in North Africa was to be what is called a blocking force. A blocking force, for those of you who don't know, is just basically a force which delays the enemy action, or even if you can stop them at a certain place, hold them to a stalemate. Um, this is similar to what happened in the First World War at the front. Effectively, both powers were blocking each other. The Germans were on the firm defensive and focused on the peripheral campaign, which involved the Ottomans and uh, the Saudi Peninsula, which is where you get Lawrence of Arabia. Continuing on, however, the course of the war had already changed. By 1942, Greece already had been an operation taken, and remember, Mussolini was the one that initiated that conflict and entered Greece into the conflict in general, but his forces that atta attacked from Albania met fierce resistance and was slogged down, and it took the Germans to invade through Bulgaria and to outflank the Greeks and the Allied forces which had been sent to bolster Greek forces there on the peninsula um, to completely drive out the Greek powers. And this would also accumulate into Operation Mercury, which is the seizure of Crete. But this wasn't enough. And it almost gave a taste of what the Italians would do, which is make a lot of promises, risk a lot, and underperform and under-deliver. And Libya was no different. And this is why Hitler himself took a lot of negotiating just to get him to send an intervention force to help the Duce. Partially, both these men admired each other, but the political instability within Italy was one of those things that kept the Fuhrer awake at night. People like Balbo and the Italian Fascist Council were constantly conspiring to upend him, and so was the king, Vittorio Emanuele III. And this state of affairs couldn't continue. And so Libya took on not only a strategic role, not only a logistical role and, you know, oil-producing role, but also political in nature. The Germans were sent as was planned by the OKW and Rommel himself to be under the overall command of the Comando Supremo under General Garibaldi who had relieved Graziani in the months prior however they were in charge of the operational and tactical considerations of the campaign it wasn't the plan however of the OKW to even consider the Italian General Garibaldi's orders or consent, because obviously the Italian command was both compromised and inept. And so that's how it began. The Wehrmacht sent, again, its 15th Armored Division, rather Panzer Division, and its 5th Light Division. What a Light Division is for them was an infantry division without heavy artillery, so it only had field guns and mortars. 
Both of these divisions were pressed together and formed into the 5th Armored Division, or the 5th Panzer Division, Africa Corps. To buttress as part of this corps were the Italian 10th Army reconstituted, and this included the 27th Infantry Division, Brescia, the 17th Infantry Division, Pavia, and the 132nd Armored Division, Ariete. And all three of these divisions had been heavily mangled, lost supplies, lost men, probably low morale, and on top of everything else, the quality of supply and uh, the presence of or lack of tanks in their sole mechanized tank division and trucks as well only added to the problem. And so they already began, and Operation Sonnenblum commences. Sonnenblum, of course, means is German for sunflower. What happens immediately is the 8th Army, which is already a little bit tired. It's not like the Italians are a walk a walkover, but they have been losing steadily, and the 8th Army under General Ritchie has been steadying losing men throughout this North African campaign, and the counterattack comes as a shock. It comes as a shock because the Italians, from his perspective, have changed on top of the added luster of Rommel, who had established himself in the Battle for France in 1940, and the expert tactical maneuvering of the German forces and units, and the operational maneuvering of all units combined, which emphasized maneuver and speed as opposed to position. And initially speaking, this operation started on the 24th, the 24th of March, 1941, and the attacks commence and maneuver around strong points. So instead, what Rommel does, instead of trying to take positions head-on and roll the enemy back, what he does is he maneuvers around them and the, how do you say, it, the special position of desert warfare is that you're able to maneuver around enemies without a continuous line of resistance. Uh, because of the way that the terrain is, it's impossible to logistically supply an entire fortified line. So, you know, it's like in World War One, there was one continuous line from the English Channel all the way down to Switzerland or thereabouts. This wasn't the case. Desert warfare, in a lot of ways, resembled almost like naval warfare, where tanks and trucks and men kind of sailed the dunes of the sands and the the plateaus and were able to maneuver and fight. And so retaking the initiative and armed with new tanks and a new detachment, new morale, uh, new initiative, new attacks, only added to the initiative being taken back by the Axis. And it basically throws the wrench in the British way of war, which it's almost like when you read through the different doctrines and experiences of the British, the Imperial Army, it was still stuck, even at this late date, in this positional Fabian strategy, which focused a lot more on attrition than on maneuver. And even though this guy, I love, I love this guy, he wrote a book called Strategy, and it's by B.H. Littlehart. B.H. Uh, Littlehart was a captain in World War I, and he was one of the first innovators of maneuver warfare, alongside the likes of Guderian, etc. 
and he talked about that the necessity or the, the victory of the next war would be picked up by those who were able to capture this idea of swiftness and mechanization and focus on maneuver and cutting supply lines and encirclement as opposed to of the Fabian strategy, which is what characterized the First World War. And coincidentally, deep battlefield doctrine is one of those doctrines that was inherited from the First World War for the Russians, and that's what they're waging in Ukraine, just in case you're wondering what their kind of MO is. And so, anyway, the operation goes through, and they already encapsulate. And if you can see in your mind's eye a map of Serenica, there are little, almost fortified positions, boxes. And what Rommel does is that he pierces the enemy line with his tanks, causes disruption in the logistical supply of, the, of each of these fortified positions, and encircles them with infantry of both Italian and Germans. And this works wondrously. It works perfectly, and it completely routes the 8th Army, and they are getting schlacked. Because it's not only that Rommel sees the victory, he didn't wait to necessarily consolidate his gains by sitting still. The way Rommel consolidated his gains was keeping on the attack. Keeping on the attack so fast that he outpaced his logistical chain. You know, oil, for instance, was first of all disembarked in Tripoli and then had to be carried on to lorries all the way to the battlefront, correct? And so he was going so fast, and the British Army was retreating in such disarray that they were leaving behind entire depots of munitions, of fuel, of... Even, I think, I remember reading that roughly 90% of the Africa Corps by the end of the campaign was composed of Allied armor, and not German armor. So they were able to basically outpace the enemy and capture him, and they were sustained logistically by the enemy, by defeating him. And that's kind of, that was the secret sauce, you know? That was the secret sauce for Roman, uh, excuse me, Rommel. Oh, is that, that's a Freudian slip right there. You understand there's a deep esoteric understanding that the emperors and the founders of Rome were all German. Do not attack. Anyway, point being is this this initiative was retained by the Germans and it kept on going through. And so they retake Benghazi and there was this really interesting little episode in Benghazi where Rommel takes a uh, bath in the Mediterranean Sea with his high command, his staff officers and SAS troops. At that time, Churchill was freaking out, right? And so he sent a, a hit squad to try and kill Rommel and on three separate occasions, they almost did. And at this specific one in Benghazi, Rounds landed from sharpshooters on the cliffs almost five feet away from Rommel. And when he went out and he captured these British soldiers, not only did he capture them, but he had them taken to his tent as POWs, of course, but he even offered them the possibility of um, medals of, um, how do you say, the, the Iron Cross with uh, knight swords as, as a kind of almost... Um, chivalric fellow soldier admiration for these commandos. And of course they denied it, or I don't even know how that ended up, but this little episode should show you, first of all, the underhandedness of the Allied forces, uh, the unnecessary 
lengths that they would go to, like dirty communists that they would be, or they are. FDR was certainly a communist. Churchill was uh, a drunk and an opiate addict who threw away the uh, British Empire. But I won't get into that. But the point is that Rommel and the characteristic of this campaign was strictly one of the highest ethical campaigns, if you want to call it ethical. It sounds like an HR word, but it was one of those campaigns that you could be proud to be a soldier on. Uh, the men of the Africa Corps were admired by not only the people in the Axis, but also the men in the Allies, and for Rommel as well, the Desert Fox. And you have to remember like the, the extreme heat and the arduous undertakings they went, but they never resorted to underhanded tactics that you would see, for instance, on the Eastern Front, or the, the duplicity of the Allies. But carrying on, the operation continues until finally there is a line which had been, because the British had established a defense in depth, had been held at Tobruk. And this line basically was one of, uh, one of the thinner parts of the Sahara, so the operational location for both forces was restricted to a roughly 20-kilometer span between the coast and the inner dune, if that makes sense, the, the coast of the, the Sahara. And positions had been in depth. Um, the Imperial Army, which composed of British troops, New Zealanders, and Indians, of course, these are all Dominion forces, had been well dug in massive minefields. And I'm going to add also in the description the map, so that way you understand the undertaking that was the Battle of Gazala, which was called Operation Venice, right? Operation Operazione Venezia. And the massive... The, the, the British learned how Rommel ticked at that point. But up until this point, all of his attacks were piercing through the front. And so what they did is establish these fortified pillboxes, defense in depth, of, like I keep on saying, mines, and positional reinforcement locations, which would allow a steady operational reserve to seal any specific breach of the line in the front. But they weren't prepared for this. They weren't prepared for Rommel to make a feint attack or a fixing force using the 10th Army of Italians at the front of the formation. And this was, by the way, at the beginning of this episode, almost the narration of the experience of what the Italian soldiers experienced, right? These are the infantry grunts who simply fixed the enemy. And the main effort, however, came from the flanking maneuver. And this came from the Africa Corps, the general... Uh, Rommel's personal corps, but also the Italian Ariete uh, division, armor division, as well as some other motorized division of the Italian uh, section. And this swing swung, excuse me, way south and onto the side of an unprepared force, and the only resistance that they met was from these free French forces, French, French legionnaires, uh, who had held out at an Ottoman, old Ottoman fortress, um, which actually provided a great amount of trouble for Rommel. And so you have to remember, so the attack started at 2 p.m. 
that was the front. And the operational maneuver started eight hours later, way into the night at 2000 hours, where Rommel heads down south and tries to flank the Allied forces. And so this is under the cover of night. They literally, in their tanks, were navigating their positions by the stars because they couldn't see their compasses. That's how crazy it was. And they went around and in this night fire were attacking. But by this time, the Italian forces who had made that head-on charge way up on the coast had met steady resistance and were actually thrown back a couple of times. And the only thing that seized victory from the jaws of defeat was Rommel's ability to be everywhere on the battlefield. It was actually really funny because he personally had this dirigible... Um, you know, airmobile kind of thing where he was literally following the front line of every unit, Italian and German. And that was one of the gifts of Rommel. Rommel, he saw his men, all of whom he was under the charge of, Italian and Germans, and everyone. He cared about them. He made sure that they were logistically fed, that they were taken care of, that there weren't serious repercussions and um, mis-, mis- mishandlings of justice and it's one of those guys that made the Italians admire him and he followed them and constantly gave them cheer kicked them in the ass when they weren't being as aggressive as he needed them to be or basically gave them direction when they were a little bit scattered and didn't know so the British counterattacked, right and it was during this period of time, this time frame, before the maneuver that Rommel used his armored units to maneuver around the British positions, he had to actually fly back or use this little bus that he used and go to the Italian positions and throw his operational reserves behind them, stop the campaign, or rather the British attack, and counter-thrust. And it was this counter-thrust that was so efficient but before we move on, I think it's important that you know why. Rommel's, the way that Rommel was able to use armor was masterful. Because it didn't, because when you think of armor, for instance, you think of armor like the, the, the Soviets thought of armor, which is why the Soviets, the, for instance, the T-72, you guys don't know this, but their forward velocity is far faster than their rear philosophy uh, velocity. So when a T-72 goes into reverse, it only goes seven, or I think it was four kilometers an hour. That is incredibly low. It can only go fast or relatively fast for a tank forwards. But this isn't how Rommel used his tanks. He understood the utility of tanks, of course, and the frontal um, assault position, the ability to pierce the enemy. But he also used them in this uncanny way using this limited resource, what he was able to do is goad the British or the Allied forces into attacking and following his panzers after an initial skirmish, make it almost seem as though they had been beaten off. And when they followed, Rommel had already emplaced field positions and field guns into a, a death uh, position right? I- into basically a dead space in a crossfire. And it was with also his ingenious utilization of the anti-aircraft guns of the 88. And uh, you have to remember at this time, this is commonplace knowledge, but Rommel was an innovator. Before then, anti-aircraft guns hadn't been used really, except for in desperate positions or in a a non-concerted effort 
had they be used in an anti-tank or anti-personnel role. But it was part of Rommel's plan to utilize these artillery fixtures in his wider armored campaign. This is the, the, the crux of the argument, and this is what the Allied powers learned from World War II in retrospect, and which is what characterized the Cold War doctrines of NATO, which is combined arms doctrine. Combined arms doctrine is completely different um, from the original World War I doctrine, which focused on one branch of the military at a time, the infantry, the artillery, and in World War I, in part, the aircraft. And all of these were never synchronous. They were under different commands, and they were never able to like orchestrate a perfect until late in the war where the Allies were able to timetable a artillery barrage creep followed with tanks and infantry to follow in that wake. In World War II, it's almost like they unlearned those experiences. And Rommel and Guderian and the men of the OKW in the interwar period were pioneers of the mechanized combined arms maneuver warfare theory. And so what happened was, basically, Rommel was able to use the different arms of the army. So not only the aircraft and the air force which is the Luftwaffe and the Italian air force etc but they were able to synchronize the attacks of the air air force of the armor of the infantry of the artillery of even the supply and logistical command and basically make sure in this orchestra of armed forces and death and and war that they were able to punch a line in the positions that mattered at a timetable which suited and kept the initiative and kept the tempo of events flowing quickly. Because what happened is that the planning of the Germans and the ability to make sure that everything was synchronous and attacked not only added to their combat power, obviously, but was able to pinprick exactly the position of the Allies where they were weakest and make the positions that were previously strong weak and make them vulnerable to exploitation. And that is something the British didn't learn until very late in the war, until it really didn't matter, because at that point they just kind of outmuscled the Axis powers with uh, logistical power and uh, just basically superiority of fires and whole kinds of crazy crap, which is hard to... which is the thing, right? It's like, you you can only learn from your defeats or learn from positions where you had successes in trying times. And, of course, the Allies and Allied soldiers were put in positions that were difficult. Anytime you're in the military, it is a difficult time. You, you, you can't be incompetent and still win on, on just having massive equipment. I mean, Desert Storm is a perfect example where the 2003 invasion of Iraq, where the Iraqis had, the, I think it was like the third largest army in the world with tanks and anti-aircraft guns, and yeah, it was a little bit outdated, but the thing is, they had mass. So it's not mass alone that wins, or technology alone that wins, it's also the leader. Leadership in general, that makes it all come together. Because, as the saying goes, I don't fear an army of lions led by a sheep, which was the Italian army before the German intervention, but I I fear an army of sheep led by a lion. Because a lot of the times... Leadership is, is, in America and the modern world and liberal society, we think of 
leadership as as simply one man who is everything and that you know that's every everything is a superpower which is not leadership is also affecting the people under you who admire you for instance let's say the the generals in the staff command of Rommel he was a great leader because he was present and he did all the things that a leader should do he had integrity etc and he had the energy and the, the drive to continue and fight but he instilled those qualities and expected those qualities of his men and fathered them a fatherhood type leadership to that, that's the the draw of leadership that people don't get is what what motivates men to act well to fight is to uh, win the praise of someone that you admire you read this a lot within napoleon's memoirs of what men will do for Napoleon and for his glory, but this is true of any great leader, any great military leader, is that you instill a kind of a father-type model of leadership where you give and you teach, and sometimes you give tough love, but the, the mechanism that makes these men perform is the mechanism of wanting to please, if that makes sense psychologically, I, I understand that some live shit is gonna, gonna try and Freudianly struct because you see they're bug men. They don't they don't understand anything. Everything is about their own ends and their individual means, which is why they make terrible soldiers. Really, I mean, if you look at the PKK in Turkey, they're, they're a bunch of communists. And well, if you don't believe in an afterlife or you don't believe in something greater aside from your personal gain, well, you don't really have much staying power, do you? But going back, you know, I'm going to talk about the leadership attitudes and perspectives of Rommel in a bit. Let's just finish up the campaign and then we'll analyze the leadership potential, which is the thing that is salient to us. So anyway, he wins the Battle of Gonzala. He pierces, flanks, and counterattacks, basically reduces all the strongholds, takes Tobruk as well. He takes the fuel, the munitions, the tanks, even though it's less at this point, but already his supply lines are becoming tenuously long with very few lorries. The teams of men bringing up all the logistical necessities from Tripoli or Benghazi are continually harassed. The convoys are becoming whittled down as well from Allied sea power and air power projected from Malta. And so, slowly but surely, the thrust of Rommel reaches a culminating point. Now, for those of you who don't know what culminating point is, all it means, it denotes, basically, a military force's end of their line, so to speak. Uh, there's no more give. That's the end of their potency. And anything after that... Um, ultimately will result in a shambles. It's, it becomes too fragile to become militarily salient anymore. And so already they arrive at the battle defenses of El Alamein. And this is, of course, if you watch the History Channel in World War II, this is where the Allies make the big turn, and there's all this kind of stuff where they rout the Africa Corps and blah, blah, blah. But you have to understand 
what happened and why it is, what caused this upset. Rommel not only had been, he was a man that slept three hours a day on this entire campaign, which lasted for roughly nine to ten months. He was constantly at the front, constantly making rounds, talking to his even the lowish echelons of men, privates and corporals who showed great initiative, and he was constantly being ferried around. There are even stories of Rommel, for instance, being so forward deployed that sometimes he ended up, for instance, in that Battle of Gazala, he ended up running through one of the allied hospitals or a few medical centers which were needing supplies. He promised that he would return, and even though in retrospect he understood that they were the allied doctors, he came back and he delivered his promise, which only speaks for his integrity as a man, as a commander, and as a leader, but also the omnipresence of Rommel. Now it's one thing, if you've ever felt, uh, I guess at your job or whatever, but especially in a military command, for those of you who are in the military, um, an absent leader... Of course, there needs to be some distinction. Like Nietzsche said, there needs to be some distance between up and below because this breeds a certain type of uh, positive praise, positive respect, you know, uh, just like a father and a son. However, being too absent causes men to be able to slack, to think that they can get away with this or that or the other thing, you know, whatever, or or worse, if you're on the ropes in the middle of battle line, you know, you're scared, you don't know what to do, and basically you start routing. Well, Rommel was there. He was there at the point of friction. And the point of friction, of course, is where the Schwerpunkt is or where the line was flailing, right? And he was there everywhere. And so every man performed because every man didn't want to let down their commander, their great general. They always perked up and attacked harder. So they get to Alamein, and during this time, the Allies are concentrating a massive reserve of men, a massive reserve of a massive defensive bulwark with anti-tank ditches and anti-tank mines and anti-personnel mines and massive defenses in depth, which was... Uh, over the top if you didn't know Rommel and basically they, they had a by the end of it a 10 to 1 armor advantage they had a 8 to 1 artillery advantage they had I think it was something crazy like a 5 to 1 manpower advantage and so Rommel was already getting to the end of his tether he was already at the line and unfortunately as much and as hard as they try the tragic end of the Africa Corps was met on the battlefield of El Alamein, where they were shattered and turned back. Well, they weren't even shattered. Rommel made sure, under General Nuring, that the retreat was ordered, and they gave an elastic defense, constantly scoring kills and attritional losses on the enemy. And like I said, by this time, there was almost not a single German tank at the El Alamein battle. Everything had been salvaged from the Allies. Fuel, mostly salvaged by the Allies, and so on and so on. Even some munitions and rifles, etc., same. And so what happened was they arrived and they get broken, and at this time, after nine months of constant expiration, Rommel succumbs to his sickness, which he had like a grave sickness, and he was ordered to return to Germany, where he underwent... Uh, severe medical treatment and the after effect battle 
was carried out by his subordinates. Oh, and by the way, if you ever watched that movie Patton, where the Allies attack across from Casablanca into Algeria, back into Tunisia, and into Libya, Tripoli from the west, well, that was under General Nuring, and Rommel wasn't even present for months. It's ridiculous. Like, I love Patton, but it's ridiculous to think that Patton even thought that he was facing Rommel. He's not stupid or that kind of shallowly vain. He, he's a smart dude. That's ridiculous. But continuing on and understanding the campaign, and if you want to read this, there are many books called The Desert Fox or from Stackpole that are great books from publishing houses that will give you the blow-by-blow -blow of every major engagement and munitions and all that stuff. But that's not the focus or the locus of our education here at this transmission. The emphasis that I want to draw your attention to is leadership. Leadership is that superpower that makes men into lions and makes them accomplish the unaccomplishable. Leadership is that very essence. It is that thing that shatters all expectations. Rommel's campaign, why I love the North African campaign and North Africa and the Africa Corps itself is because even Hitler and the OKW, they planned it to be a controlled blocking force. So they thought that by the end of 1941, there would not be a single Axis power left in Libya. And if anything, there would be just a, is a, an active defense. And Rommel changed all of that. Do you understand? That's what leadership and, and energy does. Now, looking back, there are also aspects to leadership that are not immediately apparent. In the book, for instance, in Rommel, called Infantry Attacks, he has a little Punnett square of how to select for uh, the officer corps, which are leaders, right? That's the currency, what it makes an officer an officer's leadership. And not every leader, of course, is how do you say, cut out to be the stuff. In fact, I think less than 50% of selected leaders are competent. And that's a very sad state of affairs, but it's true. So let's stay with the truth. What Rommel was able to do on this Punnett Square, for instance, I'll tell you about later, was prioritize the correct kind of man for the correct kind of job. That's part of leadership. Part of leadership is assessing your subordinates and putting them in positions in which you can get the most out of them and which they feel... Uh, it's, it's not even just an emotional give and take, but it's also a competence. It's a situational kind of thing. But the way he selected, for instance, a Punnett square. And the axes, for instance, would be on the y-axis, intelligence. On the x-axis, energy. Energy, of course, denoting a person's like psychological tenor, ability to continue under stress and sleep deprivation and all this kind of stuff. That's something that people don't get in... Um, military context, when you're sleep deprived you make really stupid decisions. In fact when you're sleep deprived you have brain damage and if you're too sleep deprived you are basically functioning on the same level of cognitive processing as someone who's drunk. So you have to understand under combat operations it's about being able to go even when you don't have the strength, right? And so, the way he, he cut it down was basically officers that had high energy and high intelligence 
were large formation commanders, basically men that operated on the divisional and brigade staff who were tenacious, you know, and always omnipresent, just like Rommel was. And then the low energy, high intelligence, so basically kind of a little bit lazy, but very intelligent guys were his staff officers, his planners, his logistical handlers, his people that think outside the box and give give good battle plans and tactical decisions and advice, right? That's what a staff officer is and makes plans, etc. Now, high energy and low intelligence was reserved for officers who were line officers and junior positions, men who meant well and were good soldiers otherwise, and they just, you know, don't have the acumen to, to be on a large-scale, large planner kind of deal, he put them in the line, and that's like battalion, company, platoon level. Low energy and low intelligence generally were allocated to logistical units, rear operating units, and non-essential kind of fringe units, which basically, uh, you, know, ba- you know, the gendarme, uh, people that weren't necessarily the best tool in the shed, so to speak, but they would execute their job and do their duty, etc., and they were held to a high standard. And that's the other thing, too, is leadership is inspiring people to overcome their natural propensities and uh, perform above their baseline, above their standard. And that's what Rommel did. He inspired men. He inspired them by his own example of being, first of all, high integrity, high energy, high this and the high that. And that's the thing is part, the majority of leadership is example. Why? Because it gives reference to the subordinate on how to act, an inspiration for him to emulate the leader, which is something we're naturally programmed to do psychologically, but also on top of everything else. You know, leadership example basically tightens up things which people would get away with. So, for instance, uh, Rommel ran a really tight ship and made sure that the locals weren't outside of the norm of war harassed and unnecessarily killed or, you know, some crazy stuff like rapine and whatever, he ran a really tight ship by his own example. And his energy inspired others to be as energetic. And his leadership skill inspired others to make sure that even the lowest man in his formation was doing well, that he was constantly at the front line, inspiring men to be aggressive and instinctual in their attacks to seize the initiative. And that's the, the other thing, last thing about leadership that people don't get. Leadership is not micromanaging. Leadership is possessing the authority and the spiritual gravity to make men act in your best interests, delegate them a goal. So, for instance, you know, if you want someone to achieve something, instead of looking over their fucking back and watching them do every step, what you do is you say, hey, accomplish task A. You know, you give them parameters, say like, hey, okay, do this, left and right lateral limit, which means what you can or cannot do. Maximum is, okay, you can't do war crimes, you can't do this or that, but Anything goes aside from that. Just figure it out. And that's the beauty of leadership, of being able to trust your fellow man, to to seize the initiative and inspire everyone along that chain of command 
to assess their situation locally and, you know, take the attack to the enemy. And the Allies weren't able to do that, and that's part of the reason why uh, Rommel in 1940 and the Wehrmacht was so successful in defeating the armies of France is because they had still this antique-type uh, systemic leadership which every order for every major formation had to be relayed up the chain of command up to the supreme commander and then all the way down and so while entire formations of men were seeing something develop they had to wait in line for the for them to get the permission to either attack or seize a moment of opportunity or to uh, if they were facing immense resistance that was beyond the scope of the mission. For instance, the Somme in World War I, where tons of Allied soldiers were sent to their death needlessly because men at the front weren't allowed to call off the attack because of how much resistance there was. What ends up happening is you have needless loss of men and manpower of experienced men, which is most important, and materiel. And that's what Rommel and the German command innovated is the ability to trust your subordinates to achieve what they do and to judge them on the outcome, not judge them on the means. And if they fail too often or, you know, after a, a certain line of tether, relocate them, help them, build them up, and position them better. You know what I mean? That's what leadership is. Not a micromanager. You're not a factory owner. And a lot of people faced this dilemma and this issue uh, in World War II, which is why the Germans were so great. They were able to exploit moments of opportunity that presented themselves. And finally, logistics. I think there's this great quote, and I want to read it to you, that explained why the Germans lost, the Italians lost, in the Second World War. Stand by. This is Dwight Eisenhower, by the way, the general. Throughout the struggle, it was in his logistic inability to maintain his armies in the field that the enemy's fatal weakness lay. Courage his forces had in full measure, but courage was not enough. Reinforcements failed to arrive. Weapons, ammunition, and food alike ran short, and the dearth of fuel caused their power of tac tactical mobility to dwindle to the vanishing point. In the last stages of the campaign, they could do little more than wait for the Allied advance to sweep over them. Now, Dwight Eisenhower, of course, was speaking of the Battle for France, or the Second Battle for France, um, and the Ardennes campaign, but this could also be applied to the Africa Corps and the African campaign, because even though there was an elastic defense and there was a lot of attack and initiative taken, at the end of the day, it was the logistical weakness of... of the Axis powers that lay the ruin of of their the whole war, their campaign, their civilization, all Western civilization collapsed in 1945, and it was this critical vulnerability. Now, very unsexy, right? When we talk about war, people often talk about oh, weapon systems, this and that, and the other thing, but often the devil's in the details. It's in the unsexy and commonplace things like making sure you have enough stuff and making sure that stuff arrives on time and making sure there's enough of it. it like, which is why if you go to any war college in NATO in the West, 
um, there is this common saying, which is uh, it's it's by uh, Omar Bradley actually is uh, you know amateurs talk about tactics, masters talk about logistics, and I think it's absolutely true. So that's the one flaw of Rommel. I think unfortunately, if there's one thing, let's say everyone, great or small, has things that they can improve on. That's just the human condition, right? Um, and unfortunately, if you read his diary, if you read his combat action reports, the emphasis on the logistical chain was heavily de-emphasized or largely absent. He left that largely to the Italians, who, I'm sure you understand, are very Mediterranean in their timetables, which is to say they run two hours late, and on the battlefield, probably not at all. On top of that, the uh, trust he had in his Italian superiors was, even when placed well, was not, and it was too much. And so he didn't make any provisions for uh, supplying his men with enough food, water, and munitions to carry on their campaign. This is the uh, issue. You know, you see this in Barbarossa as well, of course, and you see this in the campaigns that happen throughout history. The Allies were able to leverage their critical strength, which, you know, they're frankly mediocre as, as uh, soldiers. The British and the Americans were not really that great um, as soldiers. In fact, the, the most effective soldiers in the Allied army, aside from, of course, the Soviets that did the bulk of the fighting and, and you know, whatever, uh, it was... Let's see, I believe it was the American armored arm and the British and American airborne troops who were seen as a tactical, like, elite force by both sides. But everything else, their line infantry, their line, you know, divisions, they weren't held in high regard. And even what made them effective was simply overwhelming the enemy with fires, with shells, with ammunition, <laughs> you know, everything, they basically had a surplus of everything, so under that mass, they they succumbed. It's kind of like the UN forces or American forces in Korea, when they were faced with the hordes of Chinese after 1950, you know, the Chinese weren't well equipped, they weren't given much food, they were not logistically supplied, but simply by mass alone with, you know, like crazy stuff like one rifle and one clip per man just waves upon waves and just bayonets stuffing in overwhelming positions the enemy was able to win and that's something that people don't get is like you know that's why the allies won is just simply overwhelming the enemy uh, and the soviets by the way would have collapsed a lot sooner had it not been for the sustainment of the soviet war machine with allied armor and trucks and everything else. In fact, it's really crazy. You watch, you know, videos from the Second World War, Soviet videos, you don't see a single one, a single video with an American truck in it, or it's very rare, and you especially don't see American tanks. But in 1942 and 1943, the majority of their armament and equipment came from America. In fact, uh, you, I have to recommend this book. It was uh, Stalin's War, uh, which is basically this guy, historian, 
great historian, Sean McMeekin, that tears open the lid of the Soviet and communist conspiracy that had taken over the United States and had given leverage and rise to the Soviet Union. And it's crazy how much armament we gave to the Soviets. You know, when FDR was talking about the arsenal of democracy, the majority of the Lend-Lease program went to the Soviets, not to the British and not to the French. It went to the Soviets, to the communists. And, uh, you know, I'm going to leave it to for you to read it there, but suffice it to say that the Americans were portrayed at the highest echelons. And, any case, the point being is the Germans were actually knew of the M4 Sherman from their exposure to them on the Eastern Front. Not because, even before the Allies had invaded into D-Day, like 1944, all that kind of stuff, they actually had a lot of experience with the M4 simply because they were exposed to them and the Soviets. And the majority of their call for fires and uh, there's like these little firing cards each one of these uh, tank, anti-tank crews had was deliberately added into it the, the armor considerations for a Sherman. Now, just to wrap things up here, leadership, of course, I believe heavily in leadership and it's not just the people that you are leading but it's also the mastery of your competence core. So, you know, if you're in the military, it's knowing your basics well and performing those fundamentals above, way above average, at least in your 80th percentile. And then on top of that, you have to have the energy and the presence, uh, you know, the kind of basically Rommel-esque endless tether of energy to constantly be forward deployed and the self-accountability because you see Rommel was the senior commander on that front and he held himself to a high standard and made sure even though internally he probably went through a lot of duress and challenges and fear he was always attacking he was always exposing himself to fires until actually he got shot down from his spotter plane and as soon as he got shot down there was a bus that pulled up by accident that happened to be on the line and he commandeered that and kept on going. That's the kind of thing that kind of the moral, ethical thing you have to imbibe in yourself so you can imbibe in others. And, uh, you know, the modern person downplays the need for ethics. And the reason why is because they rely on their surroundings to make them act in a certain way. But great leaders understand that it's about being able to have the agency to impose upon yourself standards you do not flag on and that you hold up even when no one's looking. Having the integrity to, to follow the letter of your own law, to, to not be a hypocrite, and, you know, to basically go above and beyond. And like I said before, Rommel, he, went, he would campaign for months at a time with three hours of sleep and still make the right shots, call the wrong right shots, you know what I mean? And so, if you're f someone following him, that's the example, that's the standard. And you have to try and apply to that, and people did. Now, rolling up this whole segment, I think it's important that you understand that World War II, if you study the battles, if you study the infantry and the memoirs and stuff like that, it is a great central learning point for modern conventional conflict. 
a lot of people close off their ears to historical examples because they think that Romans and Carthaginians and Greeks and whatever don't have relevance to today because the technology is different and whatever whatever excuse they try to make but the essence of battle and war and leadership have stayed the same because humans are the same if you read Thucydides and about the exceptional men within every different league's army whether it's friggin Aegis the second all the way to you know uh, whoever it may be in that campaign the Peloponnesian War men of great leadership potential always read back into history into specifically classical antiquity for lessons of, of leadership and ethics and manly virtue in this, the term that Machiavelli used it you won't see this in the Christian period and you won't see this later on but that's why we read just like Machiavelli Caesar and his discourses about the Gallic War and why we read Thucydides and Peloponnesian War and everything like that is because the tether of human the human soul is the same and you know how to harness it you're able to transform the material limitations that you're confronted with and turn it to your advantage. Now I think I've talked too long and the Africa Corps is something I've already covered. I highly recommend you read the added links and education, especially if you're in the military or learn about them. But until then, this is General Lance. And this is Bruta Historia, signing off.